names in the British wrestling industry. Two men who changed the way we think about professional wrestling today, I think that's fair to say, and two men who have the strongest legacy as far as their particular stamp on the world. I'm talking about the British Bulldogs, Tommy Billington, the Dynamite Kid, and Davey Boy Smith. And to talk to me about them is a writer who has written a book called Dynamite and Davey, Mr. Stephen Bell. How are you, sir? I'm great, James. Glad to, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, we usually have uh, on the show with new guests is try and introduce yourself and tell us about your professional wrestling and what you got you going with the Squared Circle. Oh, well, um, being the ripe old age of 36, it, if you work that backwards, uh, you'll, <laughs> you'll work out that I was a, a young child at the prime era of Hulk Hogan and Davey when he was the British Bulldog. And obviously became a huge fan of the likes of Brett. And it, obviously it were really targeted. Vince McMahon had targeted the youth of that era. And as I say, I'm the perfect age uh, to have succumbed to that. Uh, it was when Sky TV sort of took over and uh, American wrestling replaced any British wrestling that had happened through World of Sport and ITV uh, in the gener- for the generation before. Um, just you, that's my generation because I'm old. Carry well, on. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I didn't want to ask, but you know, yeah, <laughs> you, you'll know more about the world of sport era than me, then. But yes, um, obviously, Dynamite and Davey had come out of that uh, that era and sort of stumbled across the golden era, as it became known, of professional wrestling, and that is where my uh, attention were first drawn to professional wrestling as a child and then obviously I think in the mid-90s most of my generation in flux with the WWF and probably American wrestling as a whole uh, had a dip uh, everything else became more interesting uh, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of football and boxing and, uh, but then obviously as a teenager <laughs> The Attitude Era came, came along, and so did Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock and Trish Stratus. And, you know, uh, what more does a teenager want? So, <laughs> yeah, I was I was firmly, firmly back uh, a huge fan of professional wrestling for the sort of 99 through uh, through all that era, really. Uh, and, and still am now. I sort of come in peaks and troughs with it, really, with my wrestling fandom. Um, but, yeah... I obviously, when Davey died, I was firmly at the height of a wrestling fandom and he were one, possibly only him and The Undertaker really, had sort of transcended my two um, periods of being a fan. Everybody else had either been and gone in terms of a WWF anyway, or um, were newer on the scene for the Attitude Era. And uh, so, yeah, and being older and more socially and geographically aware, I soon became aware of the fact that it were from 
just up the road from me, you know, only sort of 45 minutes drive from a very similar background to me from a small mining town in the north of England. And yeah, I became really intrigued by his story. Um, a friend a friend of ours, me, me and my brother, that got really back into wrestling in a big way during that era. And um, we were desperate to catch up on everything that we'd missed. So uh, a friend of ours had... Um, curated he hadn't made the mistake of falling out of love with wrestling and um he'd curated a big uh collection of the old vhs tapes of all the pay-per-views going right back to wrestlemania one so uh night in night out we'd uh come home with bin liners full of vhs <laughs> to, to slowly work his way through a couple of night and you know um and it that were when I first stumbled across the British Bulldogs plural as opposed to opposed to David Boy Smith, the British Bulldog, uh, because I'd sort of gone backwards in time to yeah. before my first wrestling fandom uh, began. And so, uh, yeah, that's when I first witnessed the Dynamite Kid. Uh, and at the same sort of time, I became really uh, interested in the behind the scenes sort of stuff started buying books and that was the time when Mick Foley's book first came out and he yeah. puts dynamite over massively, tells a couple of <laughs> fascinating stories about <laughs> him, uh, but puts them over in a huge way as possible, probably in the mid eighties, the greatest wrestler that there was. And um, that sort of got me really thinking. So I, I did start doing my own bits of research all the way back then and discovered that they were, so I'm going back 20 years now, uh, discovered that they were first cousins from this small mining town in the north of England. And it really, really got me interested all the way back then. Um, and then uh, people say that, you know, I think it mostly gets said about sort of Princess Diana and maybe Freddie Mercury that everybody remembers where they were when they, heard that they died well i remember yeah. exactly where i wanted that david died it really shocked me to the car as i say well they him and the undertaker were the only two that had sort of transcended yeah. that uh it'd been the british bulldog the superhero type character um to me as a child uh it then been the sort of more gritty stonewashed denim wearing british bulldog but still looked um a million dollars uh and then suddenly I just got the shocking news that it, it died and it, it really shook me, if I'm honest. I were only sort of 17, 18 at the time. And so, yeah, that that's what then over the coming years, the internet were a lot more um, of a thing. Yeah. And, and, mm -hmm. and I were able to do a bit more interesting, found out about the, no pun intended, but the sort of dark side of the ring, if you like. And um, yeah. that, that era just carried on. And obviously then there were the subsequent tragedies of Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit and I, I just became more more um, interested in sort of a lot of the behind the scenes stuff than I did mm. the actual um, on-screen content then and it's something that uh, I find really fascinating and yeah here we are all these years later uh, <laughs> I, 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 obviously Brett's book, Brett's book came out and put a lot more meat on the bones of what I knew about Dynamite and Davey and it, I just thought it were a matter of time before somebody wrote this book and I was really sort of anticipating it. And then <laughs> a few a few twists of fate later, I became sort of a recognised sports published author myself. And I just found myself in this position where I thought, why not? Why can't it be me that does it? And yeah, it's been an absolutely fascinating journey.
it is i think that's the thing i mean for me i'm 10 years older than you so i grew up with davian dynamite on my telly you know as kids like the first time i saw dynamite within 1978 i was four years old i can barely remember it but i certainly recognize it when i watch it on youtube now and there was three heels who <laughs> will remain nameless against um the fabulous royal brothers and their hand-picked tag team partner dynamite kid yeah you know burt royal and vic faulkner put dynamite over like gangbusters and it's this packed hall in i guess walthamstow or some town hall back in the mid and late 1970s and they went nuts for the kid and he was an ethereal character even then you could tell the way by the way he stood by the way he conducted himself he was a man old him i guess he must have been about 17 18 years old but he looked about 25 in the way he carried himself in the ring he looked about 12 in the way <laughs> his yeah. facial expressions and then the first time i saw davy boy would have been i guess 82 or 83 i found the earliest time match i found of him which i presume i watched because i watched every world of sport every saturday afternoon without re religiously like weekends was saturday afternoon four o'clock wrestling 10 o'clock sunday morning church for my <laughs> entire childhood that was it I strictly catholic mom very protestant dad <laughs> well wow. i didn't go dad didn't go to church he watched wrestling that was, that was wrestling in the middle <laughs> so yeah that was it and mum was a wrestling fan as well but yeah so you know i watched davy boy versus dave finley uh in a eliminator for the british mid heavyweight championship i think and yeah that, that'd have been sort of when davy were on a trip back from calgary then i'd have said it that sort of time yeah and it yeah. was like but the, th the daft thing is, you watch them two wrestle, and obviously David Boy came went on to be the biggest draw in British wrestling history. Dave Finley goes on to be the most, probably the most influential British wrestling worker ever, um, because he he basically produced <laughs> a lot of the stuff in the in the uh, post Attitude era. He book he um, trained and booked the women's division. Yeah, created, created the current women's roster. Yeah, really. and it's like you look at that match and you watch these two guys and it's like, it, it, it's it's so good. It's like yeah, you'd, 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 you'd have never known what you were watching at the time, would you? No, but, yeah. no that's it. And it, that's, that's the bit, and I say this so often, but it is like I we went to Cleethorpe's Memorial Hall once, every, once a month, every Sunday to see the wrestling, and it was the best wrestlers in the world, and we had no clue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I well, I don't, I don't think people watching World of Sport did either because um, there was so much emphasis on Big Daddy and that main event or uh, the the big guys or the yeah. small the small guy that wore tag teaming with Big Daddy and that was the um, trope for the whole show. I don't think anybody realised just how strong the undercard were at that time and it, it's something I've question especially with my research into this book you know if if max crabtree or some of the other promoters that have played the cards right and blended out big daddy uh, a bit more gracefully uh, and timed it alongside the popularity of the wwf they could have really really captured something you know they could have had a really strong roster you know maybe picked uh, some of the uh, successful uh, parts of what Vince McMahon were doing and it integrated it nicely and a bit of talent swapping and we could have had something really, really strong, but uh, it just went the opposite way as 
um, as the WWF and Vince McMahon got grander and grander and more colourful and more um, in your face, the British wrestling scene uh, sort of shrunk, uh, went even more into dingy dark halls with still sort of the Big Daddy Roadshow uh, that were becoming unsustainable as he got older and older. And, yeah, they just sort of played that, played their hand wrong there, I think, because they could have had something special. It, yeah, it, when you think about it, they had access to, like, Tiger Mask and Justin Liger and Owen Hart. <laughs> yeah, well... well they <laughs> and it's all of these guys that could come and wrestle for them. But, and, but yeah. even even the homegrown, you know, as we've discussed, obviously, yeah. there's Dynamite and David, but they, them two have maybe flown the nest by then. But you've, you've got Finlay, Regal, Brookside... Uh, and all these others that were just bursting at the seams and yeah. having great matches with each other, going having great matches abroad. Um, and yeah, they just couldn't seem to get away from the short term thinking that we'll just keep Big Daddy bringing in the crowd as long <laughs> as we can. And it, yeah, it backfired a bit. Well, let's talk about that first section because it basically boils down to Wigan and the Snake Pit and that culture of professional wrestling in the early 1970s that had been fostered by Billy Riley, Ernie Riley, Billy Robinson, Ted Batley, who trained Davey Boy and Dynamite. What do you think, looking back at it now, as we see the influence on what that tiny little shed in Wigan did in professional wrestling worldwide, how do you feel about like where this background that Davey and Dynamite come from, how important was it for them to have drive to be good? Well, it ended up being even more important than it originally was. Uh, and I'll explain what I mean by that, because um, they stumbled across Ted Betley, or Ted Betley stumbled across them, would uh, be a better way of putting it. Uh, <laughs> Ted Betley was uh, a, a worker who, who'd been a shooter as well. It was ingrained in that scene. Uh, around the Wigan, Warrington area uh, that had grown up with professional wrestling throughout the Second World War. It had, was something that I've covered heavily in my previous book that I covered, which was the biography of Douglas Clark, who wore a heavyweight world champion, uh, who lived in Uddersfield, where I'm from, actually. And um, mm. that's how it, it was one of the reasons why it really took off in the 30s and 40s uh, in the north of England, particularly uh, with rugby league being so used, the two skills became almost one and the same in terms of the training methods. Uh, and so throughout the, after the breakout, after the end of the Second World War and then ITV uh, buying up a terrestrial t TV station and wanting some new content to go on there, they um, looked towards joint promotions, which had just arrived on the scene as professional wrestling look to sort of turn over a new leaf and make itself more fam family friendly. Uh, and it all just sort of came together at the same time in the late fifties and sixties. And these guys had good careers and sort of Billy Robinson was born out of that, out of Ted Betley and uh, Billy Riley, Carl Gotch of a similar era. And uh, yeah, it just became known as the uh, epicenter of not only the north of England all of a sudden, but probably the whole of England, uh, the whole of the UK, for producing professional wrestlers. And um, so when Ted stumbled across Dynamite first, uh, and just basically, and same happened with Dave a couple of years later, Dave was obviously influenced by Tom's success, but um, 
it was first that he just wanted to give this sort of scrappy young tear away something to concentrate on. He was, um, uh, you know, a fighting lad. Even then, his uh, his dad had been a boxer. His granddad had been a boxer. Uh, he was destined to go into some sort of combat sport. And yeah, so Ted Bentley took him in, taught him the uh, basics to start with. And then as he just got more and more skilled, more and more skilled, he, he increased his skill level. He took him then to the snake pit, which was run by Billy Riley, which was more based on uh, mat skills and shooting and stretching. And they threw him instantly in with uh, the bigger, older lads. Uh, and one by one, Tom were holding his own with them. Uh, and that's when... Uh, Ted Bentley knew he had something really special. Tom had been, he'd excelled at school at gymnastics and acrobatics, it, just something that he had a, a real natural hand eye coordination, uh, a real athletic, natural athletic ability. So you combine that with uh, a sort of natural tendency towards uh, being a bit scrappy, if you like. He, uh, <laughs> professional wrestling was perfect for him. And uh, yeah, by the time he was 17, he was on TV. He was playing the part of the uh, small underdog uh, who was fighting the bigger, more experienced veteran eels. And so the crowd just naturally took to him. Uh, couldn't get enough of him and he was overcoming, overcoming the odds week in, week out. Max Crabtree saw the opportunity to put him uh, with his brother Shirley, Big Daddy, as a as the tag team, so that Tom could do all the bumping, do all the working, while uh, Big Daddy pretended to, to pretended to want the hot tag. <laughs> uh, and eventually, when Tom did manage to, in desperation, make the hot tag to uh, to Shirley, Big Daddy would come in and do a few belly butts and end the match like that. And it were a formula that worked. Uh, uh, just just for the, uh, just a foreshadowing moment. This is a pattern that repeats itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, it repeats itself twice in my book for both Diana Wright and Davis. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> but but that I mean you know as as we've just said it was so huge for your generation. You know you're talking yeah. 10, 10 to 15, 10, 12, 15 million viewers a week, uh, and at 17, 18 years old, Tom had that, and then. Following that, Davey had that, and it gives them that work ethic. They have to be good every single week. They have to be on the game every single time, and uh, it it just made them as good as they could possibly be. Uh, they had a natural ability. They had a natural passion for it that, that you need if you're going to succeed at the highest level, and they just took to it like ducks to water, uh, and the crowd lapped them up. They both sort of played the same part, as I've just discussed with Tom. Davey followed to a couple of years later and played that same role of the underdog. You know, they even billed him as young David just to sort of emphasise yeah. the fact that it was uh, this schoolboy who was battling against all the odds. Uh, and yet, unfortunately, despite the ITV viewing numbers, the money was extremely poor uh, on the British <laughs> wrestling scene. And so uh, them being so talented, they were destined for bigger things. They both um, had rivalries with Jimmy Brakes, who were viewed as you know the, the sort of gatekeeper, I think, of the smaller weight divisions of British wrestling. Mm. He, uh, he would be the perennial, a perennial champion, uh, beating everybody sort of of a domestic class uh, uh, in that brilliant eel character that he had. 
but any anybody that were destined for bigger things, uh, Steve Wright probably just before Dynamite, and then Davey just after Dynamite, he wouldn't hesitate but to put them over and make them look brilliant. And uh, yeah, that was viewed as a huge stepping stone for both of them when they uh, came out of their uh, respective rivalries with Jimmy Brakes looking fantastic and on the winning side. And uh, yeah, yeah uh, they were destined for bigger things and it was just a twist of fate that Bruce Hart happened to be in... Um, in Cleethorpe's wrestling on the same bill as Dynamite when he uh, tore the house down uh, with Rollerball Rocco and uh, Bruce went home determined that it would get Tom uh, to Stampede Wrestling and rescue their, at the time, failing promotion. And yeah, <laughs> the, the, the rest is a bit of history. Fair enough. I Yes, that was actually one show I missed, unfortunately, as a child. But there we go. Couldn't get tickets for it, I don't think. My parents couldn't, but there you go. Uh, but I think just stay on that section a second, because you mentioned Steve right there. I think as well, two things. First of all, Jim Briggs. If you're a wrestling fan is not which Jim Briggs wrestle, the current kind of guy you want to watch is Zack Sabre Jr. Zack Sabre Jr. is trash-talking. And niggling offense is pure Jim Breeks because Jim Breeks was a little bastard. <laughs> yeah. that, was a, that was basically the, his the, entire the, character. The original, the original little bastard. <laughs> <laughs> he, he would go out of his way to niggle opponents, niggle the crowd, and he sold tickets like gangbusters. But he was a genius professional wrestler. Um, sadly, over the last few years, his life has not gone particularly well. And you can find out stories about that and what I mean. But to celebrate his wrestling career, it was really important to Dynamite. And if you, you can find televised matches of them together because it did get him over. But the one thing I do want to stress is that pressure cooker of professional wrestling in the 1970s, specifically in the north of the United Kingdom, because you did have David Wayne Dynamite. But before them, a couple of years before, was Mark Rocco, Marty Jones and Steve Wright. And Jones and Rocco were changing the business on top. And they were the blueprint for what Dynamite would do with Tiger Mask a few years down the line. But you had to be good because Rocco and Jones were the best there was. And they were friends, all of them. But they were all pushing each other to be better and better each week, each week, week in and out. And Rocco had said, it was as said in interviews a few years ago, it said it wasn't that we were going to have the best match we could. It was we were going to have the best match anyone could every night. So if you've got people with that kind of attitude and that kind of talent, that's how you get good. We talked about this with All Japan Women as well. One of the reasons why Minami Toyota, in my opinion, is the greatest wrestler ever lived is because she had Akira Hokuto, Aji Khan, Bull Nakano, um, mm. Kokoki Inoue, all of these people who, if you put them in any promotion at any time period, would make money hand over fist, and she was better than all of them. So... That's the thing for me with Dynamite and Davy Boy. They came from this culture that was win at all costs and be the best you can be at all costs and be better than everybody else at all costs. Now, the well, cost it, pretty heavy price. Yes, the, I was just going to say the at all costs thing is yeah. a theme that runs throughout the book. And, uh, you know, Tom says at the end of his book, no regrets. You know, he sat there in a, yeah. sat there in a wheelchair. Uh, in a tiny, you know, flea-bidden flat in Wigan, uh, talking about his life to a ghostwriter, and 
you can tell and he means it when he says it, no regrets. You know, he, yeah, yeah. he lived every single day and every single minute of his wrestling life to the absolute fullest. And he left absolutely, it didn't matter if he were wrestling in front of 12 people or 12,000 people. He would wrestle the same match. He wouldn't take anything easy. If his opponent, even in front of them, 12 people were taking it easy because they couldn't be bothered, he would let them know that that wasn't acceptable. He left no stone unturned to be the best he possibly could. Uh, and I, it deserves all the credit in the world for that. Obviously, um, the sacrifices that you make, there's some that are um, better practiced than others, shall we say. And yeah. he went into some forms which were uh, bad practice, probably slightly bad practice then, terrible practice now, <laughs> looking back. Yeah. Now, that we, now that we know a lot more and the world's moved on and... Um, uh, obviously it's taken an awful lot of tragedy and an awful lot of sadness to to make the sport and the world change from from all that but as well as just being a trail trailblazing uh wrestler and so one of the most influential wrestlers ever his story is and dave is obviously uh such a cautionary tale as well um and one of the ones that you can look back on and say yeah, the industry needed to change. You know, he, he was going out there, putting that kind of effort and taking them kind of bumps and um, putting himself through the maximum that his body would allow him and more, and then taking substances to allow him to push it that bit more all the time, which were only ever going to end in one one way, looking back uh, yeah. with hindsight. But there were wrestling 250, 300 nights a year, you know, uh, and that was one thing that had to change if they wanted people to, to have that kind of, mentality and that kind of perfection well it, it, they had to slow down then so it was one or the other they couldn't have um wrestlers performing like that they wonder if they want wrestlers to perform like that don't be greedy and make them do it six times a week you know uh so unfortunately he came at a time when that was the culture uh, he embraced that culture he loved that culture he lived for it um but as we've just said he paid a heavy price definitely um, let's think about Stampede because Davy Boy was a growing star on the UK scene, but when he gets to Canada and he starts to find a center for himself as a baby face and Dynamite is really rocking as a heel, that's when they start to build the legacy that the WWF fans would know and certainly that the New Japan fans would know because they were they were starting to really coalesce as tag teams and understanding their characters as wrestlers. Now, Stampede in the 70s wasn't really a character-led territory. It was a wrestling-led territory. Well, there were good characters there, don't get me wrong, but it's the wrestling that did the talking. So I think maybe they had a little bit of an easier time because they were great wrestlers. But um, it must have been such a, a culture switch to go from, you know, Lancashire... To Calgary, because <laughs> well, you know, it's, it, they speak English. Um, that's about the big about that about the same thing. <laughs> well, so, uh, it's funny you should it's funny you should say that, James. Um, I wanted to come at this book from a few very specific points of view, and I wanted to do it. Um, I was quite insistent, despite a couple of times doubting myself. Um, I wanted it to be Dynamite and David. There's been certain things done about Dynamite. There's been certain things covered yeah. about David. Nobody has ever, 
I've, I've found out why uh, to a large extent. Nobody's <laughs> ever brought it all together and discussed them uh, in depth as cousins, yeah. friends, enemies, uh, partners, tag team, world champions, everything. They, they, they covered everything as... Uh, as these two kids from a northern mining town in England. Now, the other thing that I was desperate to discuss what a lot of people, a lot of other people or writers or broadcasters have never really uh, touched on is that, I mean, my dad was born just a few months separated from Tom. So uh, I was I were brought up and he was one of five brothers. Um, I was brought up on stories of just how poverty-stricken that era was around yeah. uh, around these parts and so i could only assume and i've correctly assumed that you know it, it was the same for dynamite and davy you know they, they weren't well off they were um and it, people of that generation from these parts the best they could have in terms of an holiday was um a week in blackpool uh once or twice a year you know people then uh of that kind of class level didn't go abroad for holidays, it wasn't the dumb thing. So these two lads go in at 18, um, obviously a couple of years removed, but both go in around about 18 uh, to another continent to live in a completely different culture. Um, was so, um, well, it must have been so trying for them. And yeah, they were just kids. The They didn't know anything really except wrestling at that point. And... Uh, yeah, I don't think it was ever really given them the respect that they deserve for taking that huge leap that they did, and they went there and they made friends and set up set up home and had families there uh, and integrated themselves, especially in the wrestling world there. But um, so I wanted to make sure that people knew that uh, it, it certainly wasn't a cakewalk for them to go over and do that. So uh, yeah, there were a few different aspects of that that I wanted to discuss and. Uh, as I found out more and more about their relationship, their relationship was a, was a fascinating um, thread that I wanted to run throughout the book, despite the individual and collective peaks and falls and uh, tragedies and triumphs. I wanted to discuss all the time where their relationship was, why it was there, um, what had happened to create the uh, friendship, the loyalty, but also the animosity, and in the end, the hatred. Uh, and it is such God, it's it's almost Shakespearean it, it, <laughs> the, the way that the the story maps out. I, I knew just from uh, reading other people's books to start before I'd really done my own in depth research about uh, the periods of time when they were such clo a close knit unit as tag team partners and friends and. Uh, really had each other's backs and I knew that there were times when they were quite the opposite of friends I never knew the reason why uh, or the reasons why the relationship took them twists and turns but as I spoke to more and more people I started to be able to piece it all together and it really really fascinating story and it's, that's where I think um, my book tells a story that nobody else ever really has yeah it's there are like a lot of stories that are wide public knowledge, um, specifically where they fell out towards the end of their careers. But, you know, even in Dynamite's book, his relationship with Davey is kind of a, a shadow. There's the stuff you see on TV as a well-groomed tag team. And quite rightly, Dynamite wrote his book from his perspective because it's his book and that's fine. 
but you don't necessarily get the entire image of what it was like to be a bulldog on the road, either in Stampede or New Japan or in WWF in the 1980s, because it's difficult in a book to translate all of that story and not, especially when you're trying to tell your own story. And obviously it's a very positive book in the light as far as Dynamite is concerned, though he was pretty, you know, open and honest about the issues he's had and some of the personal issues he's had, which don't paint him in a good light. Um, yeah, it's, I, I can imagine, having not read the book yet, I can imagine it is going to be a fascinating page turner. Um, going back to Calgary. Yeah, sorry. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, sorry, I've, I realised then that I'd gone off on a tangent and not actually... <laughs> so, yeah, well, um, obviously Dynamite had become the sort of face of the territory by the early 80s when Davey landed there and he was this superstar real. And as you say, he had transformed Stampede into a more character uh, with the sort of booking of Bruce Hart, who was... A little bit of a trailblazer himself uh, in terms of booking and promoting to what we'd see 10, 15 years later in terms of um, sort of sleazy storylines, scandalous storylines <laughs> and uh, violence and, yeah, blading. Yeah, the, the stampede in that era with Bruce's Booker and Dynamite as the main eel uh, were... Uh, revolution really uh, for the American territories and then when David came over sort of handsome young um, high flyer as he was uh, the last thing they did with kayfabe being ultimate the last thing they wanted anybody to know was that they were um, cousins uh, from the same village and from the same stable so um they sort of got them living separately and um, put them instantly in a program with each other, believing that because David was so shy, um, a, sh a shy kid, uh, believing that or hoping that Dynamite would bring out the best of him into the styles would just instantly gel because they were cut from the same cloth and trained by the same uh, person in the same gyms. And it worked to treat. They were absolutely phenomenal together, wrestling uh, wrestling a program against each other. Dynamite eventually put him over and um, made him a champion. His first major title, Davis' first major title, came uh, when Tom voluntarily put him over because he was going over to Japan. Uh, so suddenly David became the main babyface of Stampede, while Tom was a more global superstar then, especially in Japan. Uh, and... Yeah, so obviously before the age of, long before the age of the internet or even dirt sheets, they were able to get away, Japan were able to get away with bringing Davy over um, and having them as a team, um, even though they were still rivals in Stampede and that's when <laughs> uh, they're just almost via osmosis, via some kind of... Uh, just insane level of instant communication, unspoken communication that they were able to have with each other. Um, they were just awesome as either facing against one another or as tag team partners. Uh, they took double teaming to an all new level, the sort of things that we're seeing now and that we've seen for the last 20 year through all the brilliant tag teams that we've had since. A lot of that started with Dynamite and Davey in Japan um, doing these brilliant eye-flying double team action and uh yeah it, it wasn't just 
laboured tag teams that we'd seen in American wrestling before that and British wrestling before that. Uh, they were just so fast-paced, high-flying, but David were becoming... Uh, he had this natural strength about him and through... Uh, they were both sort of into getting into steroids by then, as we know, and getting bigger and stronger. They just became the full package. They were big, strong, quick, high-flying, athletic. And they took the world by storm, and that's uh, why eventually Vince McMahon uh, had to make them an offer they couldn't refuse. Uh, he'd, been chasing <laughs> them, he'd been chasing them down for a long time. Uh, Tom especially were quite resistant to go. Uh, he loved his... Japanese tours, and he knew that signing for the WWF would um, clip his wings a little bit in terms of what he could do over there. He was, he'd become so revered over there through his rivalry with Tiger Mask that he um, he was very hesitant. But in the end, as Vince McMahon does, Vince got his man on that occasion. Yeah, I think that's the the thing as well. I mean, like then you you kind of split the the Japanese era for the Bulldogs in half because there's the junior heavyweight era in New Japan which was more about Dynamite and Davey growing, because, like, if you look at the old videos of the, the tours back then, you can find them. If you go to Rudo Reels, or you can go to IVP, and they'll, they they do your best of Tiger Mask. And it'll be like, the tour would start, and they start with Brett. <laughs> Brett was not Brett Hitman Hart back then. He was Brett. <laughs> and he was Cowboy. all right. Cowboy, Cowboy Brett. Brett. Yeah, he was good. He was solid, but he was working heel, and he was pretty uncomfortable with that. And, um, you know, he'd have an all right match with Tiger Mask. And then he'd wrestle Davey, and Davey was working heel, which he clearly was not used to. <laughs> but he would have a good match with Tiger Mask, and it was the crowd would pop with it. And then he'd wrestle Dynamite, and it was like the world came undone. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, the word chemistry is so often used in wrestling when, uh, when two stars sort of just naturally gel and yeah. just have non-stop brilliant matches together. That was the ultimate example of that. They were the perfect foil for each other. Uh, they were the only two that could match each other in terms of uh, acrobatics and speed uh, and timing. And when they really knitted it together, wrestling had never seen anything like that before. Some of the sequences that they do um, still haven't been topped to this day, despite 40 years of people trying <laughs> and uh, it was this kind of kinetic energy that were just between them and the crowd bought into it to such a level where they raised the game because the the arenas in Tokyo were just shaking with excitement to see the next instalment of this rivalry. And yeah, unfortunately, um, Tom peaked a little bit too early there, you know, uh, you'd have liked to have seen him have another 15 years uh, after that, at that sort of level. But as we said earlier, it, it was just such a high, intense level and things that were having to do outside of the ring to, reta to retain that level of performance and that level of intensity uh, meant that it were always destined to, be, to have a short career. Um, but as he said, and as we've said earlier, he wouldn't have had it any other way because... That was just his nature. What sort of uh, very much a live fast, die young. Unfortunate phrase in the circumstance, but it's true. I think so as well. I think when Sayama left New Japan, I think that was it for him. Like he he won the tournament when Sayama left the company to become the new WWF Junior Heavyweight Championship champion, and he beat Davy in the final. But I think 
yeah, semi-final because he beat Cobra in the final. That was it. Yeah, sorry, apologies. <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's it does strike me as like you know, and the same with Sayama. If you watch when Dynamite's not there, it's like he's he's good, like he's clearly one of the best junior heavyweights ever. But it looks like he's waiting for something to happen, and what he's waiting for is Dynamite to be on the other side of the ring. And it's it's you can tell that they've kind of done all the things that they can do. And they need to move on, and which is all Japan for a bit, and then it's the WWF. And they yeah. go back. To, I think they actually have a more productive period in their second run in all Japan. So let's talk about WWF. <laughs> yeah, um, I think I think you've hit the nail on the head there. What happened was uh, I think Dynamite maybe even knew that it hit his peak there, and he was then trying to um, aim and Dave, who were both then trying to. Um, live in a giant's world in the WWF um, and Davey just had the more natural physique for that, obviously with the help of substances we've discussed, but Dynamite could never quite get there in terms of the strength because he was just as yeah. he was a smaller guy. Uh, so he was pushing his body to the limits to make sure that he could compete in these heavyweight divisions uh, in the land of giants when he had already peaked in the junior heavyweight division and the um, mid-heavyweight division in Stampede, the junior heavyweight division in New Japan. In terms of his all-round talent, he'd already peaked. Uh, he wanted to get better. He wanted desperate to get better. But the desperation to get better just ended up taking that edge away from him, took that slight speed away from him, uh, took a, the edge of his uh, agility that really, really set him apart for that era. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, what, but what they did then... the he was such a good, he knew his own value within the industry, uh, such a good businessman with it. And um, that's what made him then in 1984, stroke 1985, and then going into 96, made him make them moves from New Japan to All Japan, which was absolutely uh, revolutionary at the time. Nobody had ever, no gaijin foreigner had ever made uh, that leap, and he took Davey with him. Uh, that was a groundbreaking. Uh, move to do. He was still the reigning junior heavyweight champion uh, after winning the title of that tournament, as, you, as, as we've just discussed. Um, and at the si a similar sort of time, he bit the bullet and finally signed permanently with the WWF. Uh, both of them moves made them very wealthy, certainly Dynamite very wealthy, being uh, the captain of the team and a couple of years ahead of Davey in terms of being at the top and earning the big bucks. Um so, yeah, it, it was a natural progression that it, it sort of progressed in terms of his in-ring ability for the first sort of six, seven years of his career, and then it was time for him to capitalise. But to capitalise on it, uh, the uh, All Japan didn't have the same level of junior heavyweight division. They concentrated more on big, big tag team tournaments uh, with big men. Uh, your Bruiser Brodies and Stan Hansen and Foot, your... Dorian Terry Funk and uh, Gaijin of that ilk and uh, then they bought up the Tiger Mask gimmick and give it to Misawa who were a bigger man but people were desperate to see Dynamite in the ring again once again with Tiger Mask so once again he's in with a bigger man uh, and you know they, they were even getting Andre the Giant out there you know it, it all it moved from New Japan to All Japan which it um Comparison was the land of giants, and then he'd gone to the WWF, which was always known as <laughs> the land of giants. Uh, so he felt this need to to get bigger rather than quicker. 
And yeah, Davey, Davey's body took to that better. He looked more natural at that size um, and retained a bit more of his natural ability at that size. And unfortunately, from Tom getting that uh, debilitating back injury, finally yeah. getting uh, the back injury that he'd had back trouble for many years before that. But uh, when his back finally gave way at the end of 1986, uh, there was only one way that it was going to go from there, unfortunately. Yeah, it's their golden period was 84 to 86, and it was coinciding with actually the way world of sport was working. So I think in 85, the ITV contract came up and they renegotiated the deal where they would do one show with joint promotions, which was Big Daddy and Marty Jones and the Crabtrees, and one show with all-star promotions, which was Kendo Nagasaki and mm -hmm. Mark Rocco and Jushin Liger, as it turned out, which was a kind of handy <laughs> thing yeah. they managed to get hold of. And also one week with Vince McMahon's WWF. And so we actually saw more of Davey Boy and Dynamite on TV than we had done in about four years, in about 86 to 88, until the end of professional wrestling on ITV um, for the foreseeable future. And so it was like... I got to see a lot of Davy Boy and Dynamite at the Garden, and it was when the Hearts had the titles. And those bouts are just perfect tag team wrestling. Even though Dynamite's not fully recovered from the injury, they're still going fairly full tilt, but they're telling stories that are kind of the classic WWF tag team style that they're still relying on now. The, the wrestlers are different, but the actual storytelling they're trying to do is really what Brett and Neidhart and Davey and Dynamite did all those years ago. They are classic WWF stories that are built on, you know, the booking and road agency of George South, who was the, the road agent for WWF at the time. Um, Vince McMahon's vision for what he wanted the company to be. And that style of proficient technical wrestling with a lot of strength involved, because that was the style of the w house style of WWE. And clean cut baby faces and badass heels. And that's the way it worked for years and years and years. But they were the guys that kind of defined what it was supposed to look like. So, obviously, Brett, uh, the Art Foundation and the Bulldogs had these absolutely revolutionary tag team matches in the WWF in the late 80s. But what obviously people didn't know is that they were um, all four of them were family members, they were cousins and brothers in law. Um, and that's, I think, where. Uh, professional wrestling had hit a peak where WWF were providing them the grandest stage they could possibly wrestle on. But because it was uh, before the internet era and certainly even satellite TV uh, to a large extent, they could get away with um, so much, keeping so much background knowledge to themselves. So um, the fans had well, blissfully unaware of their uh, background, these four guys' background, these four guys' connection to each other, just how much time they'd all spent in the ring together. Uh, virtually every time they turned up to see a show, for all they knew, they were seeing it for the first time or certainly on a few times that these guys had shared a ring together. And they were absolutely tearing the house down across America in these house shows and... Uh, then on the big stages uh, as they started rolling out the, pay the big pay-per-views. And they were a big part of putting the WWF on the map and they absolutely revolutionised that tag team division. 
which went on to be sort of a staple of what we know now and uh, the Ardis and the Wedge and Christian and the Dudleys, what they went on to do uh, to revolutionise it all again. We only got there because um, those four guys had laid that groundwork. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you think back then, Hulk Hogan and Monster of the Week were headlining the A shows, but it was Dynamite, Davey Boy and the Hearts who were headlining the B shows and tearing the house down every time. They made B show tours possible. They were that big a draw. They didn't need to just rely on Hulk Hogan. You know, this was, it's one of those things that gets missed in wrestling history, you know, <laughs> because, you know, everyone knows about the big shows in LA, you know, and the big shows in San Francisco at the Cow Palace. And there's big shows in Miami where there was massive payoffs for wrestlers. But those B-show tours were making a lot of money for the WWF in that particular time period. Um, of course, they leave the company in 1988 under somewhat of a shadow uh, for various different reasons. Um, but they were never really top contenders after they lost the tag team titles. I would guess a lot of that was for political reasoning as far as Davy Boy and Dynamite were Considered difficult to handle, but also because of Dynamite's debilitating injuries and not really being as crisp as they once were. Yeah, um, Dynamite got away with an awful lot of his antics and things behind the scene um, and being regarded as quite difficult to deal with because he was so, so good in the ring. And after that injury, it just worked quite the same. Uh, Davy became... Um, in-ring, from a performance point of view, became the kind of leader, the guy who spent most of the time in the ring, the guy who performed the high spots and got the finishers. And, um, that enabled Dynamite, uh, enabled David to come out of his skin, come out from Dynamite's shadow. But as a tag team, they just weren't the same because what set them apart was Dynamite, that extra edge that Dynamite had, that mm. intensity, the eye flying, and the uh, the finishes that it could produce, and the um, the pure explosiveness. Um, so once they'd lost that, and they'd, um, the edge had been taken off that run, where they'd had that such phenomenal run as the champions, uh, they found it really hard to get it back. And with having Matilda as a mascot, that enabled them to do some sort of different sort of storylines, as we saw with the Islanders and Bobby Enum when they stole Matilda, and all that kind of a little bit more tongue-in-cheek and a little bit more entertainment side of it than the pure sports side that they'd originally been doing as this sort of dynamic um, duo. So, yeah, um, obviously then we saw Demolition come in and be the main tag team, uh, and then the Legion of Doom came a few years after and all that, and it did just sort of move away from them a little bit. Uh, Dynamite absolutely detested that. I didn't like the um, the more entertainment side. He didn't like being a baby face. Uh, he didn't like the lifestyle. Well, it, no, sorry, I'll take that back. He loved the lifestyle as in <laughs> uh, the the sort of partying and the uh, that side of the lifestyle, but he didn't like the WWF um, attitude towards wrestling. He wanted it to be more... Uh, down and dirty and um, more sport-based and entertainment-based. And as I say, he really anchored for Japan once again, where he was so revered. The the intensity and the style suited him so much better. Uh, it was naturally a heel, even though he was beloved over there. Uh, the gaijin, their natural storyline is always the gaijin against the homegrown talent, which creates your natural babyface and heel uh, storyline. 
uh, and it could just be itself over there. I much preferred it. And so when, after the Jacques Rougeau incident, and uh, it didn't take much for him to make the decision to, to leave the WWF for good, uh, Davey went with him without any second thought whatsoever, out of pure loyalty. They'd followed each other everywhere at that point. Um, Dynamite was undoubtedly the captain of the team, and Davey was completely uh, subservient to him. Uh, yeah, out of complete loyalty, and but unfortunately, a couple of years later, they're only that only so far that that could go. Yeah, I mean, um, really, all it took was a phone call to Giant Bapper, and they were back on the first flight to Tokyo. <laughs> oh yeah, well, um, Giant, it were a case of a bit like Vince McMahon had led the Bulldogs themselves and off of the country refuse, but uh, Dynamite again being this sort of odd baller of a businessman as well and desperately wanting to keep what he had with Japan. Uh, they were the only ones, they were the only main WWF talent who uh, were able to go and do long tours of Japan still and they were still doing the tag team tours of all Japan while they were full-time with the WWF and they were the only ones that really had that and that was because uh, it was a deal-breaker for Dynamite. Yeah. That, that was 80, 1985 going into 1986 but then when Vince McMahon decided that they were going to be his next tag team champions. He basically made Giant Babber a deal that he couldn't refuse, which was almost don't invite them back. They're not. I don't want them to go back. <laughs> they're going to be. They're going to be touring uh, America for me for the foreseeable future. They're going to be earning more money than what you can pay them. You're doing them a favour, uh, and so that was the end of that. But as you say, it, they left a big hole in Giant Babber's roster, so you very much correct that once that happened it were always something that Dynamite especially knew that he didn't need to take Vince's shit if you like you know it, <laughs> at, any, at any given point he knew that he could be snapped up by any promotion that he wanted and where he wanted to go back to all Japan uh, yeah. and Davey no no hesitation whatsoever went with him it, it's, and it's an interesting time in professional wrestling because all of a sudden in North America You've got a bunch of people who are free agents. And Babaro's favours everywhere. So in 1989, I think it is, there's a bizarre card which is main evented by the British Bulldogs versus the Rock and Roll Express in Minneapolis. <laughs> which is like... Yeah. It was quite a while into my research before I realised that much even happened, to be honest. I've, so, I've watched it yeah, awesome. I've, I've watched it. I've watched it now. It, it, it certainly doesn't disappoint. No, uh, it's, it, yeah. They both, they both bring their A games, but it is, it's a period of time you, you sort of, I don't know, it's weird. You, you know, once you think about it, that they're of the exact same era, but, but, but they always, never, seem, they always yeah. seem so far apart in the yeah. wrestling landscape. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's professional wrestling versus professional wrestling. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's like the most American team ever and the most cosmopolitan team ever yeah. in a wrestling match where you've got two babyface teams, though Dynamite and Davey kind of switch heel because otherwise it's not going to work. <laughs> yeah, well... Uh, I can't uh, boo uh, Ricky Morton. It's not possible. And, and, and Dynamite loved, no doubt loved that and embraced yes. that. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, I, I've, wa I've watched the match and it's a bit like there's some real hidden gems out there, them versus the Malinkos. Yeah. Uh, in all Japan is something again sort of associate Dean Malenko especially with being the generation after but no it's there and they're all absolutely bringing their A game uh, Davey and Dean Malenko 
have some brilliant exchanges in that match. Uh, they, they really did sort of at the peak as a tag team, as we've said in that mid to late 80s, uh, and managed to retain a fan base and uh, iconic following in multiple continents and several countries, which is something not many not many did, you know, when you think about the so uh, iconic and revered in America, Canada, Japan and Britain. There's not many that can sort of claim that not in terms of actually having yeah. earned, that, earned that respect by wrestling and uh, being such a staple part within that country rather than it just being broadcast worldwide. Uh, they certainly did it the hard way and earned the stripes uh, across the world. Yeah, I think as well, when you get a couple of years down the line and the Bulldogs break up, um, they break up before Dynamite goes back to the WWF. And... David Dynamite starts tagging with Johnny Smith as the British Bruisers, and Dynamite stops taking steroids and cleans up his act a bit, and has lost a lot of weight, but has gained, regained some mobility and doesn't have the stress on his back because he isn't carrying as much weight. Um, but and he looks tiny compared to the heavyweights he's wrestling against. But there's there's one card. It was All Japan. Um, uh, it'll be All Japan uh, Real World Tag League. You know, it's been '92 when. Doc and Gordy won the tournament. And they're wrestling Doc and Gordy. And they're the hottest tag team in the world. They are. Like, Baba's put the rocket on them. They're killing people. And they're wrestling Johnny Smith and Dynamite. And the crowd don't care about Doc and Gordy. Yeah. <laughs> Dynamite, at 180 pounds, comes in. And Steve Williams listens to the crowd. And Dynamite gives him a kick in. <laughs> and it's like, and he sells for it. Because he knows which side his bread's buttered. <laughs> yeah, it, there's not many that have had that level of respect. I don't think it, and even going into his very last match in Japan when he yeah. fought in '96, when he he looks it looks like a little old man um, yeah. compared to what he's been like in the past, and he's completely physically at that point, he's physically and mentally shot. Um, he's over there for one last half decent payday. He knows that his time's done, and. Uh, it's uh, Sasuke has launched Michinoku Pro, manages to get them all there together. He wants to have this Legends match, which he puts himself in. Um, and yeah, to, to be fair, that, that's about normal for Sasuke. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, and so you think that he's got these six Legends together. There's Mil, Mascaras and Doskaras. And uh, you would think on the face of it, they're all of a similar sort of level of... Um, of notoriety and legend, uh, but the big e, the biggest two cheers, and I, I would even say the biggest one cheers for Dynamite. The biggest two cheers is for Sayama, who was back yeah. as Tiger Mask, and then Dynamite, who just looks, you know, at least <laughs> Sayama's put some weight on, shall we say, is is a chubby is a chubby little tiger, yes, and, uh, <laughs> but he's still managing to jump around and do all his flips and rolls and roundhouse kicks and he's sort of doing that as he gets introduced and they give him a, a grand old cheer. Dynamite looks sullen. He looks down and when you read his book and you read what's going through his mind at that point, he is. He's almost embarrassed to be there. He's a bit ashamed of what he's become. Um, and he looks emotional with the reception that he gets, but it's it's really it makes the airs on the back of your neck stand up when he gets this response. Yeah, yeah. Look, you know, it looks anything but an athlete, it looks anything but a wrestler. And then he still manages in short, brief stints 
he still manages to kill it a little bit. Uh, he takes some, <laughs> takes some unbelievable bumps, which when you know what he's going through at the time makes you wince. Uh, and even at one point when you have watched him, I don't take my eyes off him when I've watched it a couple of times. And there's one time when he, the, he last goes out of the ring, he last tags out, so he, he has his last stint in a ring as a legal competitor, and it's against Sayama, obviously. Um, and as he tags out, he stood on the ring apron and he goes down to one knee and sinks his head down. And I mean, he has a seizure the following day. Uh, yeah, on yeah. The and he, he knew at that point, it's written in his book, he knew it was coming at that point, he's seeing stars. Uh, but he's so determined as he always, always watered, never, ever let the fans down, never let his yeah. uh, colleagues down. That he knows what the finish is, and the finish is him sneaking back in as an illegal man, delivering a spike pile driver, a tombstone pile driver, uh, and se- and setting up. I think it's Sasuke that gets the gets the fall. Um, yeah. And you would swear, even after I've already seen it a few times, I swear, I'm swear, he, he can't get back in. He's down. He's gone. He's out. And then his timing is once again impeccable. He just yeah. gets himself up, gets through the ropes, delivers this absolutely perfect tombstone pile driver, uh, and then rolls out of the ring, and the match is over. And it, it, I just think that kind of kind of sums him up as a performer. Um, like it's to a fault, this pride. Uh, it's him as a person and him as a wrestler. This pride, it's to quite literally to a fault because it's what drove him to take one step too far with so many things in his life. Uh, and one of them was just this absolute pride in um, always delivering and always being the man in the ring, and you just can't fault him in that for it. When I watched that card, which is the Michinoku Pro card these days, the one thing that stands out to me is that Johnny Saints on that card, and it's his first wrestling match in Japan in a long time. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And uh, you look at those two wrestlers now. Johnny Saints a little bit older, but they literally had the same background. Johnny Saint was a protege of Billy Robinson. Billy Saint went to the snake pit. Billy Saint, sorry, Johnny Saint rather, um, went to the snake pit a little bit, not much. And he developed this escapology style, which is low risk, low bump. Yes, yes. And it, Johnny, and it's the perfect world of sports style made around rock hard rings and you're wrestling six nights a week. And it, it always, every time I watch that card, I go, this is what Dynamite would have been if he played by the rules. And Johnny is still a relevant member of the wrestling community as the commissioner of NXT UK. Yeah, And that bit always kind of like, it makes you think so hard about the legacy of Davy and Dynamite compared to the legacy of the world of sports wrestlers who came before them. It does, and it goes back to, as, as you, uh, more than me, said earlier about... Um the generation that was him and Rocco and um, Marty Jones and then Davey pushing each other and pushing each other and pushing each other in that style. But they, they enjoyed it. I mean, I, I, I think that Johnny Saint and Tom are just fundamentally different people. I don't think wrestling uh, Johnny Saint's style would have satisfied Tom. I don't think it, it would have uh, pushed his buttons the way bouncing around the ring, bouncing outside of the ring and into and, <laughs> And blood shedding and um, you know that that is what that's what gave him his kicks and that is what he pushed to that next level all the time but that's why he was so revolutionary he, he made so many people over that that 15 year career that he had he made so many people so much money by 
um, because fans were so desperate to be there the next time the Dynamite yeah. Kid did, did something, did did something revolutionary once again. You look at his matches in Stampede, when he went back to Stampede as a babyface in 1984 and had a series of matches with Bad News Brown. Uh, Bad News Allen, as he was then. Uh, it, was ju- it was tearing the house down. You know, they, they got they got banned from uh, arenas. They got banned from the house <laughs> because he was... Tear, when when the the saying tearing the roof down, he sometimes quite literally was. Uh, the places were shaking to bits. They were wrestling through the crowds. They were fighting members of the crowd. You know, it was just relentless. And whilst um, it'd be, it's easy now to look back and say, "Well, God, it, it'd have been better off if he hadn't done that. It'd have been better off if he hadn't done this." Um, it, he, he just—that's the way he lived his life, and it's the way uh, he wrestled in the ring. And I just don't think you could ever take that away from him. No, I don't think so either. I think it's—it's it's just the poignancy of those two wrestlers being on those two cards, yeah. having their last, quote unquote, last matches because Johnny ended up having matches with uh, Shikara later on, and and you know, has obviously been a, a presence in WWE, was a training for them as well. Um, but yeah, it, it does strum that. And if you want, by the way. As an easy to find one, because me and Alex um, uh, Edwards looked at this on the Beginners Guide to Japan when we looked at the uh, world real world tag league in 1992. Uh, there's a match on YouTube you can find, which is Kamala of all people and Abdullah the Butcher versus the British Bruisers, and three of them are bleeding before the bell rings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, I'll and, tell and, you and, and, and Tom and Abby were best friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, it's like, oh, best mates, oh, right, yeah. And you can see Kamala's, like, Kamala, who actually, when he wasn't in North America, was actually quite of a workhorse and knew what he was doing to make an all-Japan match work. Kind of stood on the apron, just kind of looking in a aghast horror as these three people slice and dice one another. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, well, uh, obviously, Johnny Smith wore uh, cut from the same cloth as well. He was Ted Bettley's nephew. and um, Yeah, he, he, he absolutely worshipped Tom. Uh, and again, we were sort of following him everywhere he went uh, in support of him after after the split from Davy. Yeah, yeah. Let's go back to Davy because obviously they part ways. It's well documented why they part ways. And Davy Boy finds himself in the WWE in 1992, which is a good place for a big man to be. Um, and then kind of gets this meg. Well, not 1992. It was 1990 when he starts back, isn't it? And then kind of gets this. Interesting stop-start mega push. <laughs> it's not the, quite the Hulk Hogan push, but you can tell the company's changing, and he's a big part of that. Yeah, and he timed it really well to to be in that sort of upper mid card at that time, alongside you. Know, you've got uh, Kurt, Kurt Ennig and Brett, uh, Kerry Von Erich came back for a period of time. Uh, you know, a real. All, all these similar sort of standards, similar sort of aged, brilliant workers that were really getting the best out of each other. And he were great at that, but he got, I think the problem was that he got pigeonholed as uh, a powerhouse rather than a worker for a period of time. And that's why he got, um, he got put with the likes of the Warlord. And while, whilst he was still a strong member of the roster, as you say, it were quite stop start when, when he were in there with Mr. Perfect or Brett, he just looked absolutely fantastic. It looked like a matter of time before he would uh, be a main eventer. Uh, but then 
they'd sort of pair off. They might pair Kurt and Brett up, and suddenly David find himself with. I'm not. Don't want to pick on the warlord, but he's. But the one yes, no. This brings to mind, <laughs> and you know, it was never quite that same level of match, and they would find themselves. Uh, on the lower end of the card, uh, having a five or six minute match, and then Kurt and Brett would have a 20, 20 minute classic, and suddenly Davies sort of sunk below them in the pecking order. So, yeah, it, it wore a little bit like that. Uh, it looked absolutely magnificent at times. It, it wore the repeat there for Davy where he could do absolutely anything. He was big and strong enough to be in there with uh, anybody on that roster, but he was still agile and good enough to be in there with anybody from the other side, as we discussed, your Bretts and your Kurtz, and having fantastic matches with them. He could do absolutely everything for a period of time there. Um, and unfortunately, well, sort of at the end of night two, and when when he left the WWF, just never quite at them peaks again. He had a brilliant run uh, in the mid to late 90s when he was partnered with, partnered with Owen and uh, that were a bit of a renaissance for him, I think. And I, I, I think as well that was possibly the happiest time of his career as well. Uh, certainly on the road with Owen and Brett and wrestling some of the best uh, matches of his of his career. Uh, yeah, it was certainly uh, uh, up and down run in the 90s for Davey. I think so. I mean, you obviously have the biggest wrestling crowd in British wrestling history at Wembley in 92 which was kind of like the peak of WWE's popularity in the United Kingdom. Um, and it was it was the highlight of a ropey card. <laughs> I uh, have yeah. to say. I cover that quite heavily in the book. I mean, yeah. uh, to say that they've come over, the, come over here to do this mega show, um, it's they sort of take the crowd for granted, I think. I think they know that the UK audience is so desperate for it. These larger-than-life figures that are almost like superheroes from another planet to to the UK audience at that time. I think knowing that they'd got the main event that they'd got, they kind of take the crowd for granted at that point, and the crowd almost create their own eat as the, everybody else seems to be going through the motions, I think. Um, uh, but, yeah, there's... The, it doesn't matter in hindsight because nothing matters. Nobody remembers that show for anything except no. Brett and Davey and Diana. <laughs> Vince wanted to put Randy Savage and the Ultimate Warrior on last. Uh, <laughs> and, and Brett went, no. <laughs> no, they, no, no. Nobody will be able to follow us. Yeah, it's like, no. No. <laughs> Yeah, and it's just like, oh, all right, all right. No, you reckon you can do that? Yeah, yeah, we can do that. That's fine. I think. We'll, I but think even we'll that, okay. they'd had a Brett and Davey had had an all babyface match in Stampede in 1983, while Tom was off in Japan, and there was short of a couple of the reels. They'd uh, they just had one particular um, all babyface match, just out of nothing, mm. really, just forced on Stampede by what they've got available to them, and yeah. um, they were living together at the time. Were Brett and Davey, because they're both baby faces, and they planned out this perfect all all baby face match. And it's um, it's how almost ten years later um, they they kind of replicate that match, but with the stakes so much higher, and they're bringing the family. There's, there's obviously the Intercontinental title on the line. There's Davey's homecoming, uh, 
as the factor there's the family and diana and it all comes together but they, they already know that they've sort of got this match in the bank if you like and uh yeah it's it's an absolutely brilliant long-term story that that climaxes with that um the the whole family um story outside the ring the way that um, the relationships that I've found out about so fascinating. Um, always been fascinated by the art family anyway. But I think when you when you introduce Dynamite and Davy into there and how they uh, got the best out of the art family, brought them together in many ways, uh, especially from a wrestling point of view, um, and saved Stampede and gave them a lease of life. You know, they, they gave Bruce Hart as a wrestler a complete new lease of life because as passionate as we were about it obviously we're quite limited in his his work while, while Bruce and um, the because it were a big man territory having dynamite especially over to make Bruce look as good as he did for them few years they give so much they give so much to that family uh, both in and out of the ring and it, it's sort of been fascinating to learn more about that especially when you then sort of turn over the page all them years later and see what Brett and Davey achieved at Wembley in 92 and then further down the line when they um, became the New Art Foundation together. Yeah. Um, yeah. That that unbelievable night in Calgary for um, the In Your House Stampede show um, when basically that whole sort of 20-year story since... Dynamite and David first went over to Calgary. It sort of comes to an end at that at that show. Mm. I know Dynamite's obviously not there, but it's like the culmination of all that. Owen coming through. Owen was so um, inspired by Dynamite as well. He he learned to wrestle the way he did, largely by watching uh, the videos of Dynamite and Tiger Mask and training with Tom and yeah. Davy and Davy and Owen training together with Tom and Brett and. To see all that come together then 20 years later where they have this homecoming at Stampede where they're all together, minus Dynamite, tragically. Um, mm. It really is. Um, the reception that they get is very, very justified. And I think a lot of the local wrestling fans largely knew about that story as well, which uh, yeah. it's been absolutely fascinating to learn a lot more about. Right then. Well, I think we've covered all of the the big areas that you need to know about Davy and Dynamite. I will ask you this: WCW, Davy? Yes or no? <laughs> <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. Nineteen ninety-three WCW, Davy. Yes. Oh God. There's horror stories about both roles. <laughs> there is, but. Um, <laughs> There is, but 1993 Davies horror stories are largely um, hilarious. Quite, yes, quite quite humorous, as in Shockmaster and the, <laughs> uh, and the beach skit with Sting, and uh, you know uh, that that's brilliant. And you know he gets his gold tassels. It looks an absolute million dollars. It's throwing he's throwing Vader around like Vader's 150 pound. There's an awful lot to to like about Davy in his first WCW run, obviously. Um, after Montreal and going to WCW in 1998, the substance um, troubles were getting the better of him, and mm. um, I think he'd lost a lot of love for um, all, a lot of his ambition. I think had gone out of him then, and he, he weren't being booked right by WCW. And yeah, 1998 is uh, a little <laughs> bit tragic for Davy. Yeah, yeah, he was tagging with Jim Neidhart for a bit. 
and that was kind of it really they didn't really kind of like the, the obvious thing to do was reform the heart foundation with neidhart and davy and like really hammer home the 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 wwe rivalry thing but they just they they had too much talent and too much not enough time to deal with it all and that kind of all fell by the way they did i mean with the with the money and the everything that spent on getting brett there um you feel like the obvious thing to do was obviously put Brett straight in as a main eventer with um, supported by Davey and Jim uh, as, you know, and you, they could have had one of them a little bit like they'd got with the Art Foundation WWF where you could have had Brett as champion and Jim and Davey as tag champions holding all the gold and, you know, you, they, they could have done a lot with it, but it almost felt like um, Jim and Davey were collateral damage, you know, they, they didn't know what to do with them, they didn't know what to do with Brett. And they were all left to sort of rot a little bit and Jim and Davies personalities I think were that if they were a somewhat, you know, wild childs and could go off the rails a little bit and that's what happened. There you go. That's pretty much sums that that run up. But the first one will be summed up by Davies best promo ever, which was he fell on his fucking ass. You can watch the Shockmaster thing over and over and over and just listen to David go saying those words. It's just like, that's the well, best thing wrestling ever did. Dave, Dave is obviously for, for the audience and for his colleagues <laughs> and peers. He's obviously, in general, if he's being careful about it, especially in his promos, he's obviously putting on that slight or uh, softening his Lancashire accent uh, somewhat, whereas when it, when it's when he doesn't think about it, it comes out and it's the thickest Lan- Lancashire accent you could ever hear. <laughs> uh, he, fe- he fell on his fucking ass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and apparently, if you listen to like, I think there was a Legends Roundtable, and they talked to Dusty Rhodes, who was booking WCW at the time. Dusty had to be taken away from the gorilla position because he couldn't stop laughing. And it was his idea. (laughs) (laughs) As he said, they had to take me to a different room so they could continue the broadcast without me gut laughing all the way through the rest of the wrestling event. And when he eventually calmed down and got back to the gorilla position at the end of the show, Fred Ottman, who was um, uh, uh, the showmaster, came back out Put his helmet down on Dusty's desk, looked at him and went, well, I fucked that up, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I mean, if it had gone well... Oh, yeah. It would have, have been forgot about within five minutes. Uh, but but you talking. have to look at, the, look at the ingredients of that angle. We have Fred Ottman, never known for his grace and style. We have Ollie Anderson doing a voiceover. That's never gone well, let's be honest. And and WCW's set dress department again not known for their intelligence. <laughs> but it is it's so it's just so random. You've got Booker T and Stevie Ray. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's just the most random group of wrestlers spanning multiple generations and multiple promotions, just plunked together on a flat of gold, and they managed to create uh, one of the. Most iconic moments <laughs> that will ever be. Aye, uh, it will be. And I think that's a good kind of like, because Davy and Dynamite appreciated a good laugh. So it's a good story to end our podcast on today, isn't it? Yeah. All right. Thank you very much for your time, sir. Where can we find you on the internet? 
So I am at Stephen underscore Bell 1985. Uh, that's my personal Twitter. Uh, I have opened up a dedicated Twitter page for the book where I put some exclusive um, bit of content on there, some photos that I've come across and uh, some sort of rough and ready first draft um, segments from the book on specific days of anniversaries of certain things happening. Um, that is at Bulldogs Book 123. If you just search Dynamite and Davey, you'll find it no problem. Uh, you can actually get in. The DMs are open. You get in touch with me for placing a pre-order. Uh, there's a website. My own website is stephenbellwrites.com. Again, you can buy any of my previous books on there or uh, place pre-orders for Dynamite and Davey. It's uh, it's due out in April, so there's a few months to wait yet, but uh, pre-orders are available for, for the first wave and first print uh, to get out there in April. There you go. You can find me at Sheriff Lonestar on Twitter. You can find the show Troopany Show on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook, The Troopany Show, and Patreon, where you keep The Troopany Show free forever for everyone. Next week... I'm doing the maths of when this goes out and what we'll be doing. I have a feeling it might be our end-of-year award show, possibly, unless Noah do something interesting in the next three weeks. But I don't think they do because they've got that big match uh, coming up with Go Shizaki, um at uh, Budokan Hall on the 1st of January. So I'm guessing they're going to book something fairly boring for the next two weeks. Um, and New Japan World Tag League final is on a Wednesday. Why is it on a Wednesday? This with the G what Wednesday? Anyway, um, bucking in Japan aside, we'll be back with some wrestling stuff. Uh, though I think Alex Watt is itching to talk about his favorite wrestlers from North America, so we'll probably do an awards ceremony next week. Thank you very much for listening today. Thanks once again to Steve. Take care, and we'll see you soon. Bye. <laughs>